You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the website. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. For all you out there who are keen on reading academic texts on video games, we have a nice announcement uh, regarding our next episodes coming up next week because we're going to establish a reading circle. This is going to be something that we'll do. I'm not sure whether it's probably not going to be like a monthly thing. It depends a little bit on how much time we have, but we try to, you know, do it relatively regularly. And what we're going to do is we're going to dive into some essential game studies reading. The other good thing to keep in mind about this with regard to the broader philosophy of With the Terrible Fate is, dear listeners, as those of you who are regulars already know, many things that we do can be understood as reading circles. I mean, what we'll be doing today, diving deep into one game that we've played, is very much a reading circle of that game. Uh, we've done reading circles of articles uh, on With a Terrible Fate, and we'll continue to do that. But one of the things that Stefan, Dan, and I talked about when we started this podcast was how nice it would be also to give um, gamers the opportunity to get engaged with um, proper academic materials uh, that have grounded the academic study of video games now that there's a, a pretty exciting and robust history of that as well. And so especially for those listeners who might be interested in uh, getting a glimpse of the uh, most academic side of video game analysis, I think this will be a, a really fun enterprise for that. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. And maybe to those of you out there who came over from Pixel Discourse, which is my previous show, I know we had a reading circle there already, but of course we're going to start over <laughs> this time at the very beginning, at the origin of what is now referred to as ludology, so the field of of studying games as such. And that's why next week we're going to look at Johann Hösinger's Homo Ludens, a very iconic book that presents us with a very important definition on what games are or what games can be. So if you want to read along, then you can check whether you can find that book somewhere. We're, going, we're not going to talk about the whole book. That would be a bit too much to do within half an hour of a main story. But it will be, we'll be addressing roughly the first 15 to 20 pages. So that's the introduction that uh, eventually uh, leads into this uh, yeah, very profound and important definition of what a game is. And of course, you can send your thoughts and questions in for that next week's episode via Twitter, via Facebook... And, of course, via email, podcast at withaterriblefate.com. This is also part of our endeavor to bring everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that's why this show here itself is free and independent. You know, we don't have any advertisements. You won't run into a paywall. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. Every little bit helps. So if you want to contribute, then please go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Now, our main story today is about Returnal. There's, uh, there's something very familiar about this. Yeah, I think we've been we've been teasing it. <laughs> we've been teasing it for quite a while and throughout the last few weeks. It's a game that we have maybe that is something we should disclaim at the beginning. We've been we received a key from Sony for Returnal. This of course does not impact our qualitative assessment of the game and of course also not our analysis. It's 
developed by Housemark, which is a very critically acclaimed studio for fast-paced arcade action games. They made Super Stardust in 1996, Dead Nation in 2010, and one of my favorites, Resogun in 2013. I think that was even... That was PS4 launch exclusive, right? I mean, it came out right with the PS4. I believe so. I played the hell out of that game. Stefan, this is interesting because, yeah, you, you clearly have familiarity with Housemark. Uh, this was my first Housemark game, to my knowledge, that I've ever played. And so I wonder whether that impacted at least our first impressions of it because... Well, I, I try to play a lot of different kinds of video games, I'll confess. I had a very hard time at moments with the uh, the learning curve and the particular challenge of the, the play style of this game. It was hard for me to, to break into. Yeah, I think this is always the case with the first Housemark game because they are rather specific in how how combat works. So I th- maybe we can maybe we can open with that and just uh, uh, and just briefly, I, I would say that it is, it is pretty evidently clear that Returnal is a game that is very competent in putting you in extremely exciting combat encounters. It's a third-person action game, has some, you know, bullet hell influences. You shoot monsters, you dodge around, you have to be very quick on your feet and very precise with your aim. Like, this is basically how, how Returnal feels to play for me. It's very similar to what Housemark has done with previous games. Very offensive. You always have to be right there. Well, and it's a game, too, that rewards that high level of action. I mean, we can dive more into this in the the analytical content of it, but even in terms of the play style it encourages, I found myself returning time and again, uh, no pun intended, I guess, <laughs> to the adrenaline mechanic, right? Because like, as you kill more creatures without being interrupted the the context of the game story is that your character Celine's uh, adrenaline actually increases and she gains heightened senses and new abilities so it's a, it's a game that wants you to kind of break through the obstacles of things like the giant fields of bullets that are shot by enemies and and maintain your level of aggression throughout the various encounters that you're always facing yeah well i think uh this may be so <laughs> For those of you who have been listening for the past few weeks, uh, we've been bigging up Returnal um, and the review. And I think maybe two weeks ago I said, oh, I'll knock it out, no problem. Well, <laughs> I come with my tail between my legs because uh, I'm I'm the one of the three of us who got past the first boss and said, you know what? I think I've done it for me. <laughs> so I found that um, uh, I, I'm sure I'll go back to it because there is something uh, that was that was drawing me in, but I found that just personally, I'm not a big fan of the roguelike genre. Um, I really like grinding in video games, but I like to have something to show for it. So I do feel frustrated when I feel like I've grinded for a few hours and then it just all goes away. Um, But I'll say that unlike uh, a recent roguelike game that I just, I could not get into as much as I was trying, unlike Hades, which I know is maybe heresy, for those of you listening, I'm not saying it's a bad game or that I didn't, you know, think it had all. It didn't deserve all the accolades it was getting. It just did not grip me at all, and it didn't um, make me want to keep going. Returnal, on the other hand, I think has a story element to it that was so intriguing to me that it it made me push past my problems with roguelikes, um, and I think that that's why I'll go back to it. But I wanted to at least share my impressions in this uh, review that we were doing here. 
Our main story today is about Returnal. Now, Returnal, for those who aren't familiar with the genre, is an example of what's commonly called a roguelike these days. Yeah. yeah. Now, guys, uh, feel free to jump in and add context to this definition uh, if, if I'm not doing it justice, because I'll confess this isn't my main domain of video game analysis. But as I understand it, a roguelike is the kind of game where... You know, there's there's a story and a world through which to progress, and you go through it as as you typically do in a game with your avatar. But whenever the avatar is defeated uh, or killed or otherwise stopped, it's not that you revisit a save point that's located at at some particular place throughout the world, but rather you are kicked back to the very beginning of that world. And oftentimes, as part of the aesthetic and bargain, your avatar loses a lot of whatever they might have gained along the way, whether that's experience points or items and abilities or things like that. So there's a, a much firmer sense of everything being reset every time you fail. Exactly, yeah. Didn't we, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, didn't we didn't we just say that? Not that I can recall, no. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I can be a little long-winded. Are, are you saying that like, <laughs> I, I said it in more than one way just now? <laughs> no, I, no, never mind. No, that's nothing. Go on, go on, sorry. Okay. I just wanted to say that it, the term roguelike comes from the game Rogue, which uh, came out in 1980, actually, already. So it's a pretty, pretty long-established formula, but it's been rediscovered time and again. Um, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, and uh, <laughs> spawned, I would say, like, it spawned a, a genre called the roguelike, which I would say is exactly as you as you described, Aaron, um, because it really builds on that persistent reset of progress, and especially on uh, procedural generation. Like, every time you enter into the game world, which is the case in Returnal as well, everything's procedurally generated. It has its like building blocks, and I think that's noticeable in Returnal, but they're always assembled in different ways. And then there's the Rogue Light, which is a, a game that is sort of inspired by this idea of being reset, but you keep a little bit more of your progress so that it's not too harsh on you. This this will definitely set up future podcast episodes that we can talk about because uh, I, I actually, I'm willing to confess to you guys and our listeners, I didn't even know that this was one of those terms that uh, originated from an actual video game. Uh, like people oftentimes talk about Souls Lakes these days too. Uh, and uh, ardent followers of With a Terrible Fate will know that uh, we, we have quite a few views, not only on Dark Souls, but also on what it is to call a game like Dark Souls. And, and I think as someone who has a lot of love for that game and the close study of video games. It's uh, I don't know if you guys share this. Well, I know you share this, Dan, but Stefan, I don't know if you do. It's always like really frustrating to me when we have a shorthand of saying, oh, you know, this game is like this game, and we just leave it at that because uh, I feel like that is so flattening to the legacies of games that are really nuanced uh, and can be borrowed from in a lot of different ways. So maybe we'll have to pick that up in a study of Rogue at some point. But... Uh, I, I think those notions of resetting and exactly as you say, procedural generation are really essential to Returnal. Uh, and hopefully as we get a little deeper into this, we'll see how it's not merely a case of those mechanics, but also how to speak of the nuanced ways in which video games can use mechanics. Returnal does some really, really interesting storytelling uh, with those roguelike devices. It doesn't surprise me that the original rogue game has kind of faded from from memory a little bit, except for some. Like, if you're a proper geek, you probably know that, or if you're into the, into deep into this discourse. But the thing is that all video games 
or most video games have a kind of reset mechanic, right? Because if you die, you're usually being reset somewhere. And it's just that, yeah, roguelikes really build on that kind of mechanic. What's interesting too, uh, you know, as I said, I wasn't familiar with Rogue, but playing through Returnal, I found myself weirdly thinking a lot of Space Invaders, you know, the super classic old (laughs) arcade game where you just, you know, you go through wave after wave and if you die, you're kicked back to the beginning as you are in arcade games, right? So it it was interesting to think of it as a, a follower in that legacy as well. We should maybe set the story stage a little bit about Celine Vassos. She's a space scout for the Astra Corporation. And she surveys a strange planet. Um, Anthropos, I think was its name? Atropos. Atropos, yeah, thank you very much. As she surveys that planet in pursuit of an ominous signal she refers to as the White Shadow. And uh, she wants to find out where that signal originates from. Uh, So while doing that, her spaceship Helios crashes and communication with uh, her home base ceases. And she needs to then locate White Shadow in order to escape from the planet. However, there are monsters there, obviously, with like long tentacles and a lot of bullets that they shoot at you. And when Celine dies, she rewakes back at her ship. That's basically how it integrates this uh, this uh, roguelike mechanic of being reset initially into its story framework. You stumble upon your own corpses, basically. And then Celine realizes, okay, wait, something is not right here. Yeah, I can kind of relate to that a little bit just over and over again the same things happening slight changes maybe but yeah i I don't know dude you might want to see someone about that um but anyway in terms of returnal the the main topic of our conversation uh i'm sure we'll get more into this down the line but you know since you brought up the name of the planet atropos stefan one of the interesting things that uh some players might not have noticed right off the bat and I actually had to look up because my, my Greek mythology is not, uh, let's say it's a little rusty. Um, but Atropos is actually one of the three uh, goddesses of fate in traditional Greek mythology. So you know, it, some students or former students might recall the, the classic like Greek image of these three fates who spin out the threads of mortals' lives and decide how they're going to go and how long they're going to be. And Atropos is actually the fate responsible for determining when to cut these threads of mortals' lives. So a, a very clear and interesting connection that we can tease out um, between the Greek mythological aspect of Atropos and what happens with Selene and these death loops that go over and over again on the planet that's her namesake. Interesting too, right? Because um, don't those fates share an eye? So it's like sharing perspective across different bodies, basically. Oh, that's super interesting. I, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I think a bit more Remember about what? the, what was that, Hercules movie or something? Yeah, that's what I'm referencing. <laughs> yeah, Greek mythology, you know, for those who don't know, it's a spinoff from the popular Disney franchise, Hercules. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're doing some really interesting <laughs> things with the uh, expanded universe these days. You can find it all on Disney+. Plus. Our main story today is about Returnal. And for me, one thing that I think is was a real wow effect when I saw the announcement of that game was that, you know, you, you can imagine you, you enter this strange alien planet, or Selene enters this strange alien planet, a space scout, and suddenly she stumbles upon her former home, a house. This was something in the announcement trailer already. It's not a spoiler. and It was in the announcement trailer that really struck me because I knew that this game would be 
an awesome game to play from a gameplay perspective because it's it's developed by Housemark. But the wow effect came with that house suddenly being there. And she says, this is not supposed to be here. And then enters that house and everything kind of shifts. The entire pattern of the game seems to completely shift away from the fast-paced third-person action to a first-person exploration game. I found that super striking in the announcement trailer already and while playing the game as well. Stefan, I know I've heard you say that before, so I think... Oh, okay, hang on. I see what's going on. Okay, we're, we're doing like a time loop episode. Okay, no, I get it. All right, no, proceed, proceed. Yeah, Keep talking it, about return. It, it is please. very much a game about time loops. And there, it is also part of it that you walk into this house several times with things shifting. And you have different, you see different sequences that each progress the story very crucially, I would say. But I just found that one thing that just, that just I've been thinking about while playing it is it's so radically different in the way it progresses, you know? On the one hand, being very fast-paced, uh, a, a bullet hell shooter game, and on the other hand, basically a walking simulator. It almost feels like something that that might easily fall apart, you know? That such, such genre experiments often <laughs> fall apart if you don't do it well. I think that idea of texture and contrasts is really salient. Uh, this is also a game that's very self-consciously interested in time. And I think it's interesting that in a world that is constantly being reset, one of the gripping things about those sequences where the player and Celine uh, and, and sometimes Helios explore that house is there is no way to repeat them, uh, which is interesting precisely because, as you say, Stefan, a lot of the most explicit story content happens there. So it might actually be some of the content you would most want to re-experience as a player in order to try to better understand things or explore Celine's background or things like this. But not only are those story sequences in the home not replicable, but you also can't even get back into the house to merely explore its contents uh, in a in a non-scripted way. If you're outside of one of those few events, uh, the house merely opens every time there's a new exploration sequence, and then it shuts down to the point where after you see the last house sequence, it actually just becomes like a, a relic or a ruin or some kind of stone monument that's totally non-interactable. It's a really interesting contrast with the way we explore and use time in, in the exploration of Atropos. I don't know. I just I'm trying to come to to terms with that somehow. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, we've seen such things like, uh, I know that, Aaron, you're a huge fan of Nier Automata as well. Yeah. Uh, or the two of you, probably. And um, yep. th th this is something, this is also a, a, a game that, I don't know, it's, it's, like, it's like a ballet through different genres. Breaking all the barriers where you thought previously thought that that can't that can't even be possible, you know. And I feel <laughs> Returnal achieves a similar thing because I've I know that uh, that roguelike games are very much beloved for their gaming for the, for their challenge, and I know that these are all the strengths that people often criticize on walking simulators, where they feel like there is no real game, there is no real interaction, and and blending these two together is to me just to me just quite baffling. And I think one of the ways that that it does not feel disjunct is that it's just so thematically consistent because in both parts, in your exploration of the planet, in the shootouts, in the decisions that you need to make while exploring, as well as in the house, in the sequences you discover, the details that you pay attention to to unravel the mystery of what's going on, this mindset, 
this uh, psychological framework that Returnal is, is constantly developed, you know, and there are always new building blocks added to it. Not in every shootout, right? <laughs> of course, you just have <laughs> things that are just simply there for fun. But uh, everything kind of adds to this to this uh, psychological subjectification that we can find in Returnal, and I think that's that's a, a, an impressive feat to accomplish. And so, Stefan, just just for clarity, when you're talking about walking simulators, you mean games like like the Stanley Parable or Gone Home, where the main mode of engagement yeah. with the world is is simply directing your avatar to walk and investigate different things, right? Yeah, exactly. A game where you are not really the the person that drives the action itself but you just unravel and discover and you mainly walk around yeah well i shouldn't i shouldn't say that actually it's not like final fantasy around. 13 <laughs> like final fantasy 13 <laughs> <laughs> final hallway 13 to quote a well-known youtuber no but I, I think that's a really interesting point one thing that i found myself thinking about in terms of what makes those thematic and genre contrasts work in Returnal is how those contrasts, I think, are tied into its broader theming and just modalities of world. And Nier Automata is a great contrast case, right? Because you're totally right. I have endless love for Yoko Taro and Nier and Nier Automata and, and everything else in the vicinity. But I think one of the things that was so remarkable to many people about Nier Automata was that it was this really popular, well-received AAA game that felt very experimental and what many people associate more of the smaller indie scene with. And I think a big part of that, in my estimation, was precisely the, the ways in which it explored and integrated these different genres in a way that drew your attention to those contrasts in modes of storytelling and modes of gameplay, right? Uh, in contrast to that, I think what makes Returnal seem so weirdly fluid, at least to me, uh, even while using these different modes of engagement, is precisely how dreamlike it is, right? Mm, I think yeah. exactly as you say, Stefan, it's it's a deeply psychological game, and it's also one that I think is in many ways reminiscent of a dreamscape, right? There are many figures that seem very apt for allegorical interpretation, even the sentience that occupy this world that's hard for Celine to grasp. There's the fact that, as you said before, the content is quasi-procedurally generated, so you never really know what to expect through a door or around a corner, but the areas are still constant, so you get this feeling as if you've been there before, but also can't anticipate the actual content itself. And so when you suddenly slide into something that's grounded in the avatar's memory, but also feels very different than the rest of the world, it seems almost as if you slipped from one dream into another while remaining asleep. And I think that's a really interesting way to afford a lot of variations in style while still having the overall mode of storytelling feel very, very consistent. It totally is. It totally is that. I think the impressive thing is that it builds out a lore of this planet, Atropos, that Selene is exploring that is genuinely engaging while at the same time, and I think this is not like a spoiler, persistently insinuating that this is so much of an externalization of her mind to a certain degree, you know? I think I think this is just uh, bringing so many different components together in one 
uh, strand that is actually quite, it is quite straightforward if you think about it, because everything is part of one conceptual arrangement. And I think that's what makes it so impressive, what gives it this feeling of being an experimental game, even though it has this uh, this very high production value, obviously. I'm a big fan of when uh, games utilize other media really well, or the the elements of other media really well. And I feel that in that scene at least, and I'm sure this is present in the later scenes too, but in that scene, um, there's a lot of filmic language being used to the point where I was heavily reminded of the work of uh, science fiction director Denis Villeneuve, particularly Arrival. Um, just this sort of this this sort of strange sense of comfortable dread, if that makes sense, where something is not right, but you're not you're not threatened necessarily. You just feel that something's off. Yeah, I think that's right on the money, and it puts me in mind of what I've been reading in a lot of different, um, I wouldn't say reviews, but guides about the game, because a few outlets who shall not be named, but I'm sure regular <laughs> listeners and readers will know exactly who I'm talking about, uh, they talk about the house sequences as the haunted house inside of Returnal. Uh, and that, that, you know, anyone who's played even the first one will hopefully understand how and why that makes my skin crawl. I mean, that seems reductive across multiple dimensions, but I think one of the interesting ways to use that misunderstanding to grasp the much more valuable thing that you just said, Dan, is it's less that the house is haunted and more that Celine seems to be haunted and we as the players don't really understand exactly what's haunting her but it's clear that she is imposing that on the world that she's exploring right I think that's actually a thread that we see picked up throughout the game that um, to Stefan's point really highlights the way in which this world is something that can operate on multiple levels because there's this idea that Celine is exploring this foreign and uncomfortable space but that she's also interpreting it through a lens that is clearly damaged in some way, right? I'm thinking in particular beyond the house of the xenoglyphs, right? I'm, I'm sure, Dan, even if you got through the first area, you encountered some of these. They're the, the markings that the sentients have left uh, remarking and talking about different aspects of the world and their history. And one of the really interesting aspects of the game that I think unexpectedly ties together the main world and the house is that Celine actually, you know, she tries to translate these glyphs. And as, as she learns more of the language, initially she's able to better understand them. But it's very interesting because as you get further into the game, even as you collect more of the language, the game actually tells you that your translation accuracy is going down to as low as 1% or not even capable of translation. But the text that you're reading also becomes much more fluent, much more like clearly comprehensible language that is reflecting rather than any independent lore about the sentience, Celine's psychology and her history and this hauntedness that she's imposing on the world, right? And I think that that's a really interesting way to, as you say, Stefan, impose a character's psyche on the world around her while still maintaining that distinction and allowing both to be something we can explore as players. I would call it a radical subjectification. This is something that, you know, I would borrow from my from my work on my PhD. I'm, I'm doing my PhD on mental illnesses and video games. And uh, this this form of radical... I think Returnal shows us that these forms of radical subjectification allow us 
or allow game developers to be very experimental in the way they combine different genre elements and different gameplay elements if the consideration of the thematic thread of furthering that radical subjectification is the goal. I think uh, that is an interesting perspective to me because it brings us away from thinking about, okay, we're going to make a game in this or that genre and thinking more along the lines of what's the point we want to make and then you know, you can basically take various different genre elements. You can create a very experimental hybrid out of that. I think that's the only way that these games can break past the like moniker that they're given, you know, the roguelike or the souls-like, when they do these experimental things. Because yes, there are elements of that. I think, to your point earlier, Aaron, to call Returnal just a roguelike and leave it at that is doing the creators of that artwork such a huge disservice yeah. because they're putting so many different things into it and making it so interesting. Let me give you a really easy example that for fans of written literature, you know, we'll, we'll clear this up right on the money. Imagine if every like postmodern novel or stream of consciousness novel were called a Joyce like. Mm. Yeah. We should start right? doing that. Ridiculous. Yeah, and I might. Honestly, I might pick up that idea just to troll people at this point. But it's like it's yeah, this is it's really ludicrous. This is a Kane like movie. <laughs> I know, right? Oh. But it's like with video games, maybe because we're so just engaged with the gameplay as the mode through which we can engage and experience these worlds. And I'm sure this is something that'll come up when we talk about Homo Ludens too. It's like those those basic intuitions go right out the window where if we stop to think about it in terms of film or novels, and I would argue it's just as applicable to games, you know, there are rule sets for how creators are able to tell their stories and create their worlds. And it's what those creators choose to do with those rule sets and the meaning that they make out of that structure that makes their particular stories so special, right? And and when we're thinking about literature, something like calling it stream of consciousness is just a jumping off point for thinking about what makes the story special. We oftentimes, I think really sadly, don't go beyond that with video games. And that is something that I've sadly seen about Returnal. It's just focusing on the gameplay and using it as an opportunity to think about what the PS5 makes possible in terms of gameplay. And if that gets people excited about the new console, that's on the one hand great, but on the other hand, such a disservice to such an interesting and nuanced game that makes really interesting new kinds of meaning out of those tried and true modes of engagement with the medium. Our main story today is about as, Returnal. This is a game that I could have just as easily used for my for work on my PhD because I'm I'm doing my PhD on the constructions of mental illnesses in video games and Returnal is very much a game that works with, you know, uh, the subjectification of uh, the the avatar uh, who's uh, Celine uh, Vassos, a space scout who explores a strange alien planet and all of the things that she explores whether it be the biomes or the house, which we've already seen in the announcement trailer, it is all part of this subjectification. Yeah, and you know, Stefan, it's really interesting in my mind to tease out the various ways in which games can be psychological, right? Because I think one of the one of the greatest aspects of literature and storytelling in any medium is its capacity to in really robust ways, explore and articulate the psychology of a character, right? I mean, it's no coincidence that even 
someone like Sigmund Freud, who is credited with being the founder of psychoanalysis and in many ways the, the progenitor of modern psychiatry, when he was developing his theories, focused as much on literary readings and thinking about famous plays and myths uh, as he did on case studies of actual patients, right? Um, but I think something that's so interesting to me about Returnal is that uh, it did something that, in my mind, went even one step further and that I at least had not seen in recent memory anyways in video game storytelling. What's that? I have an idea. So, you know, Dan, you and I talk so much that I'm sure you have intuitions about many of my ideas about any games. <laughs> not but, what I meant, but continue. You know, I, well, I think about a game that we've mentioned many times on this podcast, um, Persona 5, right? Uh, uh, yeah. A modern classic and something that's very um, self-consciously influenced by Jung and his theories, right? And where every character has a shadow self and and is engaging with their own psychology in really interesting and metaphysically robust ways, right? Um, and, and there are many games, I think, that follow in that tradition. But what I think is interesting about Returnal is even as you can definitely read it as that same kind of psychological study, uh, and maybe at a future point we can do that kind of psychological reading of it, uh, I think there's an interesting other kind of psychological reading where instead of focusing just on Celine's traumas that she is imposing on this world around her, we can actually read the entire world and story of Returnal as an allegory for a single mind, and I think it's super interesting to think of storytelling and video game representation as a way of showing what a person's psychology can look like in that sense of using all of a game's resources to focus on a single mind, right? Dear listeners, I'm just pinging myself in here for a brief spoiler warning because I'm currently editing the show and for the next 10 minutes, we're going to go into some analytical considerations that affect the ending or that draw from the ending of the game, we're not going to talk specifically about what happens at the very end of the game. But if you are very cautious about spoiler warnings, I can say that for me personally, if I would have heard what we're going to say before playing Returnal, it wouldn't have bothered me personally, and I'm generally cautious about spoilers. But you decide for yourself, if you want to be cautious, then skip ahead for 10 minutes, roughly to minute 44. Okay, let's take it away. There is an aspect of Returnal that I actually struggled with, and that is the hive mind. Yeah. The hive mind is, uh, for you listening out there, it is a very ominous being, you could say. that it doesn't give The game doesn't give you much, even towards the end, it doesn't give you much of what the hive mind exactly is. It's basically like a tentacle creature uh, under the water's surface that seems to have some kind of powers, but it's never really clearly indicated what it does. And I couldn't really integrate the hive mind into my own reading of the game. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's very rarely discussed. Uh, and it's interesting that you even had that intuition that the the tentacled creature at the end of the game um, was the hive mind, because I, I, I wasn't even sure if that was the case. Oh. Um, yeah. D did it say that explicitly somewhere? Or is that just your, your reading of it? I think Celine says towards the end of the game, she says at least something like, are you the hive mind? As she approaches the tentacle creature 
the, at the very end. Oh, I don't know if that's true. I think she asks, are you the one who, who drew me here? You're talking about the one ah. that she meets in, uh, at the end, right? right. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting but significant difference because yeah. I think, at least on my first reading, it seems like the most intuitive um, analysis of that creature is that it's like a representation on Atropos of Octo, Helios' Helios's toy, right, that you encounter in the house more than once. Right. And so it, it seemed to me as um, and may, maybe, OK, this is interesting. We'll, we'll have to tease this out more, but um, that might still end up being an interesting way of thinking about the hive mind. I'm not sure. Um, but to take a step back, you know, I'm, I'm also, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this. I'm working on an article on this right now. So uh, listeners who are interested will be able to check this out in a much more fleshed out form there. But I think, I think what's interesting about that hive mind especially is it's, it's a great example, Stefan, of how many of the story elements of this game are certainly there and have clear influence in the world, but are only referenced or gestured at a handful of times, right? Yeah. In this modern world of storytelling, I think there's this intuition that many people have, right, to say like, oh, well that's underdeveloped, like they should have done a better job of explaining mm, yeah. what that is. Uh, yeah, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like you, you can hear people saying this. Dark Souls, I don't get what's going on. Oh my God, yeah, don't get me started. But uh, to get me started a little bit, <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think, you know, especially in a world like this, I hear a complaint like that, and the first thing I want to say is, well, have you noticed how there are so many references and like direct and explicit callbacks to actual mythology and have you ever thought about how a lot of mythology like gestures at lore in exactly that way and it's actually part of that mode of storytelling right i think when i see that kind of like gesture or archetype based storytelling especially in a world like returnal where there doesn't seem to be any further content beyond that that to me as an analyst, is a hint that wouldn't it be interesting to read this game allegorically and maybe we ought to be thinking about at least some of these characters and plot elements as symbols in part of some broader symbolic story or representation rather than focusing on what we typically think of as lore, right? And that's a big part of what led me down this this path of thinking about it as a psychology, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that because the thing is that it does... Give, Returnal gives you so many prompts to think about what's actually going on in the game, to maybe look into some mythological figures, such as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Selene, Helios. Uh, also, many of the bosses actually have uh, names like Phryke, Ixion, Nemesis, Hyperion, and Ophion that are obviously tied, from, tied into uh, Greek mythology. And you can do that. Like, if you're really curious about it, you can do it and really dig deep into that that game's story, but you can also just enjoy it in the associative manner as it is uh, presented and still get a very a very interesting vibe from it, you know, and still still understand what's what's at the core, at the heart of it. This, by the way, is is exactly one of the things that I'm focusing on in this analysis that I'm developing right now, because what you just described as a very pleasing aesthetic experience and bifurcation of what it is to play video game stuff on is kind of exactly what people like Freud talk about in the interpretation of dreams. Uh, and I don't mm. think we've said up to this point already, but the dreamlike nature 
of Returnal's world is something that is also front and center, right? Uh, and in dreams, right, there's this notion that there's the prima facie content, which is something that we can, you know, think about and experience as a dreamer always does, right? And then there's also the deeper content about the psyche that it is representing, right? And that's something that we can analyze, but we also don't need to in order to just experience the dream as such. And I think that gameplay experience you're talking about with Returnal is a very nice manifestation of that. I think to very briefly gesture at what I'm excited about digging into in this analysis. So there are, you know, basically three main players uh, in the drama that is Returnal, right? There's Celine, uh, the astronaut, uh, and there's Helios, right? The astronaut is this figure who mysteriously stalks Celine, and she says very, very provocative things about the astronaut saying like, well, I can't tell if the astronaut is watching me or guiding me. Um, Helios initially seems to be the ship and the vessel that she's piloting and on which she crash lands onto this planet. Uh, turns out to ultimately be a, a sun figure, like her child, right? And I think there's a really interesting analysis to do where, again, thinking about the world as a single psychology rather than just as an exploration of Selene as such, we can think about Celine as what psychoanalysis refers to as the ego, our perceptual mode of engagement with the world around us and how we form a personality. We can think of Helios as the id, the kind of primordial unconscious aspect of ourselves that is all we are at birth and is driven merely by um, by pleasure and is typically associated with things like play and make believe and comes into conflict with reality as the ego tries to negotiate the its desires against reality. And we can think of the astronaut as the superego, which is basically the internalized version of our uh, parents and society that forces us to abide by certain rules, right? I think it's really interesting to map out the mythological and psychological content in that way because it allows us to reflect not only on Celine's actual history, but also in a really abstract and foundational way on the tensions that motivate the development of a personality and a mind. And I think one of the things that I'm really excited to dig into in this analysis is what that means for the player who, in really subtle ways through the storytelling, I think, is put in the position of playing the role both of the astronaut and of Helios. I think the thing that has me coming back to this and really wanting to analyze it is, uh, you know, readers of With a Terrible Fate know that I'm really, really interested in the role that the player plays in video games. But this is the first time in my modern memory that I can think of a game, I, I believe, putting the player in two roles at a single time. And I think that notion of creating a psychological artifice to explain the player's dual motivations of wanting to have fun while playing a game, but also wanting to achieve certain narrative ends and the fact that those things can come into tension with each other uh, is, is just a really, really interesting and kind of experimental way of using video game storytelling to capture the core tensions that motivate a mind. Our main story today. Our main story is Returnal. Yeah, Stefan, okay, now we're going to talk about the end. I've heard this uh, about a million and a half times. I've been through it so often. So you're both going to make some great points. I think, uh, you know, I've, I've learned the nuances of both of them many, many times. So you know what I'm going to do, guys? I'm going to shut my brain off and tune out. Have a great time talking about the end of Returnal. I'll be back when we're talking about something else if I can get out of this thing. 
wow, it seems like someone's having a bad day. <laughs> uh, yeah, geez. Well, Dan, you know, my heart goes out to you. I, uh, wow. I, I hope we get a better version of Dan next week. <laughs> I mean, I've been thinking about Returnal for quite a while. I, I, I finished it like two weeks ago and I've been trying to uh, nail down some things that I find that I find a bit annoying about it. You know, because sometimes it's good to start off thinking about a game by approaching it from the few things in the case of Returnal that, in my mind, it doesn't do right. And one thing that definitely stands out to me, something that I noticed very quickly while starting to play Returnal, is that the runs in this very roguelike, structured video game where you're constantly being reset are just too long. I, I really struggled with that. How did you feel about that, Aaron? Well, you know, in, in the interest of length, as you say, I, I won't go through an explanation of what a roguelike video game is. So hopefully our listeners, if they're interested in that, can just look it up separately. Um, but I, I actually, it, it's funny, Stefan, because, you know, we've talked before about how puzzles or frustrations with games can be uh, exactly, as you say, a way into analyzing them or better understanding them. I really felt that deeply with Returnal in the following sense. Yes, the run length really frustrated me. Yes, it was really a frustrating experience to not be able to save the game at points in yeah. the middle of these cycles on Atropos, um, especially when I, I think, as we mentioned on a previous podcast episode, actually, like I accidentally opened another piece of software on my PS5 and that, you know, caused me to lose like an hour and a half of progress in a run of Returnal. So I get the frustration. I also feel like this is one of those uh, cases in which you can actually say, maybe that's part of the point and not just be giving a, a flat-footed, vacuous defense of the author. Because I think, you know, so essential to Returnal is this idea of progress being fleeting and not being able to hold on to the progress that you develop, right? And I think, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about yet in terms of Returnal is the fact that the structure and progress is very dreamlike, right? And I think one of the interesting aspects of dreams in that sense, right, especially as they're understood in literature, is they are this kind of fleeting, transient thing where you can go through a whole story or narrative and then just lose it at the end and only have traces or remnants or indeed, as Returnal calls them, artifacts of of what remains, right, um, yeah. of the journey that you took along the way, right? And so I think while it's very frustrating, it's one of those things where when I step back and ask myself analytically, well, what if they were to change it and make it, you know, better um, quality of life as people sometimes talk about it in video games journalism these days, right? Like, I, I feel like that would go against the cohesive sense in which this journey through Atropos is a, a deeply psychological kind of string of dreams. And so I'm, I'm actually really happy that they used those mechanics to frustrate me so many times across the 20 or 25 hours that I played it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that the frustration is all part of it. The thing is, they need to take the edge off a little bit, especially in such situations where, for example, I, my PS5 sometimes suffers from a rest mode bug. I want to send it into rest mode because, for example, you have a run that takes about, let's say, between two to four hours, depending on, you know, some runs only take 20 minutes because you get killed very quickly, but, but others may take three, sometimes four hours if you go all the way through towards defeating the end boss and you want to grind a little bit to, to buff up your character. 
and I tried to send it into rest mode because I had to, you know, to, to leave for a couple of hours and then it just crashes. And then you think like, oh, damn it. I was just, I literally had one playthrough where I was at the entrance of the end boss and I thought, okay, I need to take a break and it crashed. And it just led me to have to do all of that all over again. That was just really painful. So I think it is good that um, House Markets actually, as they've announced on Twitter already, working on a save feature. So you can only, only let me only save one game, you know, or like have an autosave function so that I can return to this one run as long as I haven't died. I think that would be such a huge improvement in quality of life while maintaining this level of frustration and the fleetingness of progress. Look, um, I I get what you're saying. I'm also going to be the asshole analyst about this and and fight you even on that because I grant your point about especially when the PS5 has bugs, it can be very dissatisfying. I also think one of the things worth mentioning is that this is a fascinating jaw-dropping game where one of the moments in the house features actually like zooming back to see another character engaging with a PS5, which I think, you know, we haven't really talked about my own analysis of Returnal yet, but I think that moment is actually part of what does a great job of identifying the player with the id, this this psychological concept of the unconscious that drives many of the actions of the ego and the conscious personality, which is Celine, right? And I think especially given that context of the mechanical apparatus for accessing the game itself being part of the game, um, coupled with the fact that much of Celine's progress is the, you know, attachment of these pieces of artifice to her, whether that's Xenotech or parasites or things like that. I actually think it is even more consonant with the game's story that failures or unexpected glitches in your mode of engagement could actually interrupt uh, the engagement and progress with the dream and conceptualization of self. So while I think it's really frustrating, I think there is a really interesting narratively consonant excuse for even why things like a PS5 bug could be part of the world. I'll say this, by the way, right? When a storyteller is as adept as the storytellers behind Returnal clearly are, I think there are ways to add quality of life improvements that are equally consonant with the world. I just really hope that given that they are making this update, they take the time to think about that and integrate it in a narratively compelling way rather than just saying, oh yeah, now you have a, a safe state that you can implement, which would be dissatisfying to me. I'm fairly hopeful that they will manage to, to walk that line because the thing is that Returnal does have a lot more quality of life aspects than one initially realizes. To me, when, when I started playing it, I felt like everything is reset. I basically lose everything. I felt, it felt very frustrating, and I think that's very much intentional, that you're supposed to feel like you lose everything. But then over time, you realize, okay, so I keep some certain like, abilities that allow me to explore new areas. Okay, so the weapons actually level up. And when I have, it le when I have a weapon leveled up and I find it again, because it's, I mean, it's procedurally generated, it's random which weapon you find, then it's going to be stronger than the previous time I used it. And so over time, I just felt like, okay, apart from me learning things about how the game works, it actually does have a pull. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm improving, I'm making progress even when it's reset. But this is the interesting thing about it. it this sensation, uh, it's set in for me only relatively late in the game. 
Whereas with other with other games, you notice very quickly you have this feeling of making progress. As a cross contrast here, if you play something like a very casual game, uh, let's say on your phone, for example, if you play Candy Crush, then the idea is you must instantly feel like you make progress. You're being rewarded. Amazing. So you're being pulled in. And Returnal, I feel like, does exactly the opposite of that. It first tries to get you into that headspace of you're going to lose everything. <laughs> you know? The withholding Freudian mother. <laughs> Which we have brought up, by well the way. Put. All right, slinking back away now. Thank you. Goodbye. I think it's really interesting, and we could do a whole other episode on this, so I won't dwell on it, but for a moment, to compare that kind of sense of fleeting but additive progress in Returnal to the similar sense that we get in the Dark Souls series, right? Because on the one hand, there's something that is very, like, Sisyphean about it, right? This this idea that like you always fail and you always lose everything, but you find a way to make progress. But I think the more I've been contemplating them, the more I think they're two very different cases of very good storytelling that are based on cycles, right? Because in Dark Souls, you do still have that sense of being able to lose a lot of your progress. Uh, and even if you're able to make it to the end of the game, it's conceptualized within the universe that there are these cycles. So you're never really able to make lasting change in the world, except for on a few occasions, right? But there is that sense of history and ages and progress. Whereas I think even though the feelings and sentiments of the player around Returnal can feel very similar at first blush. I think one of the things that has me going back to it time and again is that there is no sense in which you can meaningfully advance Atropos to a new age or get Selene off of Atropos forever, right? It's very much like, like I see it as this single psychological moment, uh, this representation of a mind. And exactly as you say, Stefan, like you feel very lost, you feel very disoriented as you're first trying to account for all of the pieces of that mind. And as you make more progress in the game, you can come to understand it better, but you can't develop it further. You can just yeah. come to grasp this fleeting moment of mind that you as the player choose to actualize again and again by your inputs and stresses upon it. And I think that's really interesting. I have to ask you too, by the way, uh, since you bring up the guns, maybe on a, a more lighthearted note on which to end, do you have a favorite weapon in Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I definitely do. It's the Hollow Seeker. Ah, a man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> so the Hollow Seeker, the Hollow Seeker is a gun that's so amazing because it has projectiles that automatically trace the enemy. And the the one important thing, one important tip that I realized while playing Returnal is that it is, as in many other housemark games, more important to dodge and to not get hit rather than to dish out damage. And so mm. I like playing with the Hollow Seeker because I can just hold down that trigger, you know. And it will also it will like uh, it will uh, accommodate for my uh, my poor aim, and instead I can focus more on not getting uh, not getting shot. Yeah, it's I, I wouldn't say it's quite easy mode for the game, but I think it's pretty damn close to that. I'll say for my part, especially fighting Ophion, uh, you know, with all of the bullet hell projectiles and not even being able to see the target spots on his body, his hitboxes. It's great to be able to just have an auto turret friend who will hit those for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I would say um, 
there are a lot more things that we could that we could touch upon, but we're not going to go into all the aspects now. There's, um, you know, Aaron, you're going to write an article about Returnal as well. So um, for all our listeners, you can keep an eye out for that on withaterriblefates.com. And uh, yeah, if you have any thoughts and questions, then of course, feel free to write into us. Instead, I think it's time that we move ahead with some side questing, right? Oh, thank God. Is it over? Are we done? Am I free? Yeah, well, yeah I mean, we're... I think we've mentioned everything, so... Honestly, dude, you, you got to try to bring a better attitude next week. I don't know why this main quest was so exhausting for you. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we talk about additional things that happened in the video, in video game culture, anything that's on our mind, really. Dan, what have you brought for this week? Well, it's uh, kind of a, a leftover from our E3 discussion stuff on that we didn't, um, we didn't mention, but it's had kind of this weird life of its own after oh. E3. So the article that I brought, um, I really, I, I chose an article to talk about this topic and I chose this because I, I agree with the author and I also love the title of the article. The title of the article is Stop Treating Hideo Kojima Like He's the Riddler. Um, <laughs> and this is by Imran Khan at Fanbyte. Um, and I couldn't agree with him more. So to nutshell what happened, there was a game that was uh, a trailer was released at E3 for a game called Abandoned, and um, it's a heavily voiced over trailer um, about oh, there's a town with a with a cult, and there's all kinds of spooky things happening, and oh, and the cult leader rules a town, and yada yada yada, and people started to speculate that this was a Silent Hill game because of the content of the trailer and because of the tenuous connection with Hideo Kojima and his production company. Maybe some wishful thinking involved there. Yes, I think beyond wishful thinking, in my opinion. I mean, I'd be happy to be wrong because I love Silent Hill and I love Hideo Kojima, but I think that the how this story has ballooned is that people are convinced this is a Hideo Kojima trick. Because um, he's he's known for being a, pr a prankster and playing jokes and ja jokes and japes on everybody, but uh, this has real world consequence in that this development team, uh, Blue Box, has said pretty definitively, "We have nothing to do with it. It's our own game." So I think that my problem with something like this is that there's two outcomes. One is that this is just a game that they've made called Abandoned. This is a development team and they've made their own game and this is how the press starts for it. And I know all press is good press, but you're immediately setting people up for disappointment. And frankly, knowing the internet, hatred towards Blue Box, if it's not a Silent Hill game, mm. um, and if it is, then isn't the surprise kind of ruined and aren't we, I don't know, how many times is Hideo Kojima going to trick everybody with a trailer, you know? between the Metal Gear Solid 2 um, trailer and PT being this sort of bait and switch for a Silent Hill game. Um, I just think that it's it's a very strange incident and unfair to everybody involved. And on a personal matter, as a diehard Silent Hill fan, if this is a Silent Hill game, it's going to be awful because mm. that voiceover work <laughs> is... The worst <laughs> writing. It's so bad for a Silent Hill game. So if that's the case, I'm uh, I'm upset on a number of levels. Those are my two cents. I think this is a good example of why the hype machine that we've talked about before um, is kind of toxic and doesn't do anybody any favors. 
I mean, I don't, I don't want to rehearse all the reasons why the, the modern culture of getting so excited and discussing games so long before they're released frustrates me. I do think one thing that is kind of interesting, and, and I think even an audience member, Dan, might have raised this with us after our PAX presentation on how hype culture impacts gaming. Um, I feel like if anyone were to do something like this, it would be Kojima. And I think there's an interesting potential if we really are just stuck with hype and trailer culture and teaser culture for the foreseeable future would be to uh, get someone really smart and frankly a little crazy like Kojima to do some kind of sophisticated mode of storytelling around that whole release cycle so that the uh, framing and presentation of a game from the first time it's presented to the public actually becomes a kind of game in itself. Um, but that is wishful thinking from someone who is desperate to uh, get the internet to be a little more willing to wait and see on games before they start dissecting, you know, 30 minute trailers and, and teaser demos to death. Yeah, it seems to me that one of the biggest problems of the hype cycle is not so much that people are engaged in trailers and that they analyze them because that's i'm generally cool with that but the sad thing about it is that once the game comes out it's like a blimp you know it's like it happens very quickly <laughs> reviews are out uh metacritic is like filled within two days with the ratings and then that's it it grows silent very quickly apart from some communities such as on on, on a subreddit like patient gamers where people are just you know like intentionally waiting <laughs> waiting and sitting on games and I think that is that is something that I could see happening with with a game such as this. That it creates a lot of buzz now. That maybe some people buy it, and that very quickly, if it is not a Kojima game, which from what you say, Dan, it seems rather likely that it is not, <laughs> and then it would just quickly disappear. Which is also sad if you imagine that how long you work yeah. on on any kind of game, really. You know how much time and effort goes into that for it to disappear so quickly. I think uh, you know I. I just wax poetic about it, but Imran Khan, the the author of this article at Fanbyte, um, put it very succinctly, and I just want to end my portion by quoting him. He says towards the end of his article, there's an actual game at the center of it this time, which may or may not be any good, but will certainly be lambasted for not bearing the fruit of a fan base's vast delusion. At the end of the day, all that really comes of this is creating expectations that cannot possibly be met. Well put. Aaron, what have you brought? I've brought a little reflection. So in the in the spirit of exactly what we were just talking about with Dan's side quest, and listeners probably know this by now, you know, we at With a Terrible Fate really try not to analyze or dig deep into games before we've had a time to fully digest them and think about them and reflect on the totality of them. Um, but I think this is a good venue to think about how games that we are playing invite us to reflect on other aspects of our own history with games. Uh, to wit, I just started playing Scarlet Nexus. and want to shout out Bandai Namco for giving us a key for that. I'm really excited to analyze and dig into it once I'm done with it. Uh, but having just started, it prompted me to reflect a little bit on my own gaming history with games that have different um, numbers of avatars with distinct stories and introduce those stories and avatars in different ways. So for those who haven't picked up Scarlet Nexus yet, the way that it presents its story right off the bat is by having you choose between one of two characters um, to play as, and they each have their own distinct story paths, and that's 
all I know about it at this point, uh, and there won't be any spoilers because I haven't played enough to spoil anything else. Um, but I'll tell you, I, I think it's, it's a really interesting setup, and it's also something that's interesting to me coming from Bandai Namco after their last flagship title um, in terms of new jrpg ip was code vein which was very much more in the vein uh pun intended i guess of just designing your own customizable avatar which which i think and i've written about before is much less amenable to kind of um explicit storytelling when you have this this custom avatar who doesn't speak and doesn't have any really definitive characteristics to speak of um despite all the love i have for code vein but so i think this is an interesting direction for them to take in that regard and it's gotten me just thinking about other games that i've played in the past that have done really interesting things with that um dan's playing it too and, and one of the first things i mentioned to you dan was man wouldn't it be really cool um if we played through these two storylines and then the game surprised us with a third storyline um, from another character whom we didn't know about in the first place. Um, and <laughs> that got me thinking about, of all things, uh, one of those games that like you played and loved in your childhood and then hadn't thought about in maybe a decade. And it called back to my mind the Yu-Gi-Oh! game, The False Bound Kingdom for the GameCube which was a game that I played into the ground and probably have hundreds of hours logged in back in the day. For listeners who don't know, I am a huge unabashed Yu-Gi-Oh fan as well. Um, big on big on trading card games. Hey, just get Obelisk in your party and then it's yeah. just, you know, that, that's destroy right. everything that's the entire all the time. Game. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, and that's the entire game. <laughs> um <laughs> no, but uh, it, it did the exact same thing where, you know, the characters are in a virtual world and you can play through as, as two of the main characters from the original story, Yugi or Kaiba. And then once you're done with both of those, you get to play as a third character, Joey, in a distinctive story. And Dan and I were thinking, too, about, you know, different ways in which Kingdom Hearts has approached this uh, between something like Birth by Sleep, which has three different storylines with avatars whom are all apparent to you from the beginning, or something like uh, Chain of Memories where it seems very much at first glance like your typical game with Sora, especially if you put to the side all of the Kingdom Hearts lore that has happened in the years since then and think about it just as that game that came out after Kingdom Hearts 1. And then after you're done with Sora, suddenly you have this amazing, totally unexpected opportunity to play a totally different story as Riku, right? And I, I just love and am charmed by this idea of stories that have these surprising different layers that invite you as a player into different perspectives by giving you different avatars in unexpected ways and and adding new plot in that regard i feel like that's something that um has never really to my knowledge solidified as a broader trend or genre in gaming and in part because of that every time i see it crop up it's it's this unexpected delight so I, i'm really happy to be re-engaging with a game like that I'm I'm really curious to hear what you think about Scarlet Nexus in the coming weeks because this is also a game that very much caters to my interests, and um, I, I'm very curious uh, regard as to regarding your thoughts. For now, we've been uh, going quite a bit over time, so I would say uh, let's wrap it up here. I want to thank all of you out there for uh, sticking around. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoy the show, then you know what to do. You can go over to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to give us a little bit of financial support. 
Feel free to leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. And of course, you can find all of our written content, including Aaron's upcoming returnal analysis on withaterriblefate.com. And don't forget that if you want to engage with us regarding the reading circle of Johan Hösinger's Homo Ludens, which we will do next week, then please feel free to send your thoughts and questions to our Facebook page or to our Twitter account or by email to podcast at with a terrible fate.com. I think what I've what I've learned here is that uh, I should really finish Returnal because <laughs> I don't know that my heart can take what I just went through again and I'd rather not step into another infinity loop or whatever that was. So I'll, I'll definitely get to it, guys, all right? Our main story today is about Returnal. Oh my god!